You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 105, the Staten Island Peace Conference. After General Howe conquered Brooklyn and Long Island, which I discussed back in episode 103, he decided to take a couple of weeks before invading Manhattan Island, at this time often called York City. Howe did not want to crush the colonists. His invasion of Long Island had proven to the colonists that they could not stand up to his forces. Rather than shed blood, General Howe and his brother Admiral Howe looked for a way to get the rebels to surrender and put an end to all of this. Howe, of course, intended to take Manhattan. It was only a question of whether the Continental Army would surrender before or after the British moved into the city. Howe's pause was an attempt to end things without a further demonstration of the destructive power of his army. During this pause, General Howe sent a report of the defeat of the Americans on Long Island. He didn't really go out of his way to emphasize Washington's amazing escape, so London celebrated the victory as a vindication of the plan to use overwhelming force. The king made General Howe a knight of the bath and promised the conquering hero other rewards when he returned home victorious. So, congratulations to William Howe becoming Sir William. Of course, Howe would not learn of this honor for months, but it shows just how ready officials in London were to receive some good news and name him a hero. But, as I said, General Howe seemed less interested in military victories than being a diplomat who could heal the political differences between Britain and the colonies. Remember, both of the Howe brothers were Whig members of Parliament who generally supported a policy of accommodation with the colonies. Neither of them had wanted this war. General Howe had even promised his constituents in the last election that he would not serve in America. He obviously broke that promise, but his stated reasoning was that if the king called on him to go, he really could not refuse. That actually was not entirely true. General Howe was ranked 112th in the army in terms of rank and seniority at the time. A great many of those ahead of him were too old or infirm to command troops overseas, but a great many others also simply demurred and told the ministry they did not want to serve in America. These officers did not want to snuff out the rights of their fellow Englishmen. Crushing a rebellion of British subjects was not particularly popular in England. While a solid majority in Parliament supported military action, a substantial minority did not. Even among those leaders who supported military action, 
few of the officers wanted to be remembered for crushing such a rebellion. No one wanted to be remembered as the Butcher of Boston, or the Butcher of New York, or wherever the final showdown occurred. Therefore, many of these generals simply found excuses not to go to America. While the Howe brothers were sympathetic to that view, they decided that if they went, they could perhaps prevent a wholesale slaughter of colonists as part of a larger effort to instill fear and obedience. They knew they would need to use military force, but they hoped they could negotiate a peaceful solution once the colonists saw that force and realized they could not resist it. One of General Howe's constituents wrote him to criticize his decision to deploy to America in violation of his campaign promise. In response, Howe indicates his views in more detail. Quote, One word for America. You are deceived if you suppose there are not many loyal and peaceable subjects in that country. I may safely assert that the insurgents are very few in comparison of the whole people. With respect to the few who, I am told, desire to separate themselves from the mother country, I trust when they find that they are not supported in their frantic ideas by the more moderate which I have described, they will, from fear of punishment, subside to the laws. In other words, a radical minority had somehow pushed an agenda that America should be independent of England. The majority of colonists were simply suffering under the tyranny of those radical local leaders. When the military asserted control in the colonies, the moderates would be free to express themselves and the radical minority would have no choice but to back down. Historians have long debated what General Howe's true motives were in prosecuting the war. They can point to numerous instances where Howe had the enemy within his grasp and simply allowed it to escape. Washington's escape from Brooklyn to Manhattan, which I discussed a couple of weeks ago, is only one example. Another will happen when Howe will let the Continental slip out of Manhattan that I will discuss in an upcoming episode. There are still more examples we will see as his army chases the Continentals across New Jersey and then fails to take Philadelphia. Some have argued that Howe never really wanted to win that he supported a common Whig notion of the colonies getting at least some semi-independence from Britain. In a letter to Germain before the New York campaign began, Howe said that an early decisive battle was critical to a British victory. Without such a victory, the colonists would never submit to British sovereignty. Quote, It is most likely that they, meeting the patriots, will act on the defensive by having recourse to strong entrenched situations in order to spin out the campaign, if possible, without exposing themselves to any decisive stroke. Quote. So why didn't Howe push hard for a decisive stroke at New York before pausing for his peace conference? Some think the answer is that he really did not want to win. I don't think that's the case. One reason much of this is a mystery, though, is that Howe's personal papers were destroyed in a fire in the early 1800s before historians could really dig into them. So his real motives, if written there, are probably lost forever. 
A more plausible theory for me, though, is that Howe was shaken by the loss at Bunker Hill. Back then, Gage was still the overall commander, but General Howe led the charge on the hill that day. The massive losses, especially among his officers, left a long-held impression that he should not simply rush into colonial defenses. Although speed and surprise could be effective in battle, they greatly added to the risk of loss. Howe did not want to see a massive loss of officers and men, even in a Pyrrhic victory, since he could not easily replace those men. Instead, Howe wanted to impress the colonists with the idea that the regular army was invincible. Moving slowly and allowing time for logistics and planning might allow the enemy to escape. But having the Continentals run away from the regulars was better than creating even a small risk of a Continental victory. If the regulars got too spread out while pursuing a retreating enemy, they set themselves up for ambush. Even a relatively minor win could destroy the impression of inevitability that Howe wanted to convey. Therefore, Howe moved his army slowly and methodically, pushing back the enemy and always stopping to ask if they had had enough and were ready to talk peace. Admiral Richard Howe was even more eager to negotiate a peace than his brother William. Admiral and General Howe both worked closely and regularly discussed diplomatic initiatives. Richard had insisted on being named a peace commissioner before he agreed to take command of the fleet in America. He had wanted to be a one-man commission, but the ministry insisted on having other commissioners. They did not necessarily trust the admiral not to give away too much. Admiral Howe, though, was not interested in working with others. After considerable and heated negotiations, they settled on naming General William Howe as the only other commissioner. Admiral Howe could hardly fight having his own brother on the commission. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that even before the British captured Brooklyn, Admiral Howe had sent a letter to General Washington calling for peace talks. Washington had refused that letter because Howe refused to address it to him as general. This was not simply ego. It was that Washington had no desire to discuss peace with Howe. He knew that Howe could not address him as general without implicitly recognizing the legitimacy of the Continental Congress who gave Washington that commission. Even after Howe got a messenger to meet with Washington in person, Washington made clear that he had no authority nor desire to talk about any sort of settlement. The Howes therefore decided the Colonials needed a little more demonstration of British power and went ahead with the invasion. The relatively easy invasion of Long Island showed that the so-called Continental Army and the militia were no match for the British regulars. Loyalists were already beginning to emerge around New York, just as Howe expected. If the radical leaders in the so-called Continental Congress would see that, perhaps they would be willing to back down and return as loyal subjects as long as they received pardon for their misguided actions over the previous couple of years. Howe decided to see if his demonstrated use of force on Long Island was enough and tried once again to discuss peace terms. The British Army had captured several Continental generals 
among its prisoners from the Battle of Long Island. And yes, I am using the term Battle of Long Island and Battle of Brooklyn interchangeably, talking about the same event. On August 28th, even before Washington made his escape from Long Island, the Howes invited two of their prisoners, General Sullivan and General Lord Sterling, to dine with them. The British had captured both of these officers in Brooklyn. The men discussed the course of events and whether they would carry a message to the Continental Congress calling for a peace conference. Now, the Howes had proven that they could crush the Continental Army whenever they wanted. They hoped to avoid further bloodshed by getting the Continental Congress to give up on all this independence nonsense and accept the sovereignty of the King and Parliament. General Lord Sterling refused to cooperate with the enemy. But General Sullivan seemed convinced at least enough to deliver their message to Congress. So the Howes released Sullivan on parole and allowed him to return to the American lines in New York. There, Sullivan met with General Washington and received permission to go to Congress to deliver Admiral Howe's message. Washington still adamantly believed that peace negotiations were foolish. He also thought that Sullivan was naive to think the British would ever offer a negotiated settlement with anything close to acceptable terms. But the negotiation process apparently put further British attacks on hold and gave Washington time to shore up his defenses in New York. Also, the decision for peace talks was one that Congress should make, not him. So Washington sent General Sullivan to Philadelphia to deliver Howe's message. Sullivan arrived in Philadelphia on September 2nd. He met with Congress to discuss the possibility of a peace conference. By now, Sullivan's reputation had sunk pretty low. Not only had he lost Canada, then lost the Battle of Long Island, but he had agreed to cooperate with the enemy in arranging this supposed peace conference. Some members of Congress accused Sullivan of being a dupe for Howe's plan to kill American independence. After delivering his message, Sullivan could not return to the army. Under the terms of his parole, he had to wait until the Americans returned a British general of the same rank in exchange for him. Congress had to release British General Richard Prescott, who had become an American prisoner nearly a year earlier with the fall of Montreal. After that trade, Sullivan could return to active duty. After speaking with Sullivan, Congress debated internally whether to send a delegation to Howe's proposed peace conference. Many argued the conference would simply work to divide people against the war effort. In the end, though, Congress did not think it could reject the proposal for a meeting. Congress voted to send a delegation made up of John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Edward Rutledge. All three men were pretty hardcore patriots who were not likely to find much common ground with the British diplomats. Adams especially considered the whole affair as a distraction from the war and attempt to divide moderates who were losing nerve in the face of the large British military force at New York. Even if they wanted to, the delegation did not have any authority to make any agreements. The members could listen to what Howe had to say, ask some questions, and then report back to Congress. On September 9th, the delegation left Philadelphia for New York. 
Along the way, the delegates had to stay overnight in New Brunswick, New Jersey. The inn was so full that Adams and Franklin had to share a bed. They apparently got into a fight over whether or not to leave a window open at night. For diplomats, they seemed to have difficulty even getting along with each other. They arrived two days later, on September 11th, where they took a British-controlled ferry from New Jersey to Staten Island. They met a delegation of British officers under a flag of truce. The delegation planned to leave one officer with the Americans as a hostage to guarantee their safe return. Adams told Franklin that he thought the idea absurd and requested that the officer return with them to Admiral Howe. Admiral Howe met with the congressional delegates. His brother, General Howe, did not participate. The Admiral hosted the meeting at the home of a Tory named Christopher Billup on Long Island. A Hessian guard unit had been living in the house for some time, and it was a smelly mess. Howe had his men do their best to clean up the house in a hurry and put out a meal for the delegates. Howe was apparently greatly impressed that the congressional delegates had returned with their hostage, thus indicating that they trusted Howe's honor to return them safely. That, however, was probably the high point of the meeting. When Howe learned that the delegation did not have authority to agree to anything, he considered ending the negotiations right away. But since he really wanted to see if the talks had any possibility of leading anywhere, he continued the discussion. The next hurdle was that Howe insisted on meeting with the men as private citizens, not recognizing them as a delegation from the Continental Congress, since that body was an illegal assembly without any valid authority. But the delegates insisted that they represented Congress, and Howe again allowed the discussions to proceed. Howe and Franklin had discussed possible resolutions before, when Franklin was still living in London. Howe pointed out that the ministry would agree to end all direct colonial taxes if the colonies would simply tax themselves to raise the money that the empire needed. This was, in essence, the Conciliatory Act that Parliament had passed a year earlier and which Congress had rejected. Rutledge then asked Howe if he had the authority to cancel the Prohibitory Act, which banned all colonial transatlantic trade. Howe noted that he could not void an act of Parliament, but he could suspend enforcement if the Americans ceased hostilities. Since Howe could not offer anything of substance, other than agreeing not to hang everybody, any settlement would require that the colonies surrender, then wait to hear what terms London would give them. That was simply a non-starter for the delegates. The delegates insisted there could be no negotiations until London recognized American independence. Franklin told Howe there had been too much war and devastation for the colonies to return to the empire as the king's subjects. Howe, of course, knew that independence was a non-starter in London. Although Franklin knew this would not go anywhere, he made the case for British acceptance of independence. The United States were growing into a major force in their own right, and no longer trusted British rule. The only way Britain might maintain control was to keep a large and expensive standing army in the colonies that would only impoverish both countries. On the other hand, if Britain accepted independence, it could resume trade with America, receiving the goods and raw material 
that had long benefited the British people. Howe attempted to express sympathy for the American cause, but saw the only solution as some acceptable submission to the king. Howe emphasized, though, that he really thought he had the best interest of the colonies at heart. At one point, Howe said, If the colonies should fail, I should feel and lament it like the loss of a brother. To that, Franklin responded, My lord, we shall do our utmost endeavors to save your lordship that mortification. The men talked cordially for about three hours, enjoying a few glasses of wine and a nice dinner together. But it was obvious to all that there was no common ground for negotiation. Given that Howe could not make any political concessions, and that the congressional delegation made clear that they would accept nothing less than independence, the war would have to continue. Howe returned the delegation back to New Jersey, and with his brother, drafted a joint report for Secretary Germain back in London. They noted that the Americans still insisted on recognition of independence. For officials in London, this seemed like a joke. When the king's forces crush you in battle, you submit. You don't continue to insist on getting your own way. Clearly, the army had to continue to smash at the rebellion until its leaders got that point. Similarly, the delegates reported back to Congress that Howe had zero authority to grant any political concessions. Continued talks were pointless. Adams wrote to a friend that Admiral Howe's notion that Americans were ready to submit to the king only showed that, quote, his head is rather confused, end quote. The conference seemed to vindicate Howe's political opponents. If the British planned to win, it needed to have less friendly conversations and more military victories. Howe had seemed certain that he could find a political solution to end the violence. But clearly, he was out of his league as a diplomat, or at least long overtaken by events. While the Continental Congress delegates had never thought the conference would accomplish anything, they at least got to make their point and bought several weeks for General Washington to reorganize his defenses in New York. Of course, the Howes were not worried about giving Washington more time. They believed, correctly as it turned out, that they could push aside those defenses at any time of their choosing. The talks did have one negative for the Americans. In Paris, Silas Dean was working to bring the French on board and to supply the Americans with guns and ammunition. When word reached Paris that the British and Americans were in peace talks, the French immediately suspended their covert assistance. They were not going to risk a war with Britain if the colonies were going to turn around and make nice. Fortunately, a few days later, Paris received word that nothing had come of the talks and aid resumed. Next week, we head north again, where a whole different Continental Army attempts to stop the British in Canada from launching a second invasion of New York. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. 
Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast book recommendation. So this week marks the second anniversary of this podcast. I uploaded episode one back on July 16th, 2017. By the end of the first year, the podcast had a little under 50,000 downloads total. And by the end of that first year, it was averaging about 800 downloads per episode. In the podcast's second year, we've had more than 310 downloads for a two-year total of over 360. The podcast is now averaging over 3,500 downloads per episode. I haven't spent any money to advertise the show, so all growth has been thanks to word of mouth. I really appreciate everyone who has recommended the show to others or helped spread the word in any way. May the podcast's third year continue to grow by leaps and bounds. I hope that my episodes will continue to hold your interest. And, of course, if you ever want to give me feedback or suggestions, I have an American Revolution Podcast Facebook group. I also have a Twitter account, at AmRev Podcast. And, of course, old-fashioned email as well. Links to all of these are posted on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. I also want to thank everyone who's been able to provide monetary support via PayPal and Patreon. The show remains free to all, but to those who can kick in a little to help cover my expenses, I really do appreciate it. This week, I want to give a shout out to Dave Salvatore, who supports our podcast on Patreon at the Robert Morris Circle level. Robert Morris, by the way, was the founding father known as the financier of the revolution. He used his personal fortune and business savvy to keep the revolution going through many lean years. And just to show that no good deed goes unpunished, he spent many years in debtor's prison after the war. In addition to supporting this show, Dave Salvatore has his own daily podcast, Today in American Revolution History. Each day he remembers an important anniversary of the war. A few weeks ago, on the anniversary of Caesar Rodney's death, he took the opportunity to give a brief biography of Rodney. Since I grew up in Delaware, Rodney always holds a special place in my memory. I've mentioned him in passing on my podcast, but Dave was able to give a short bio in less than five minutes that covered his life rather well. You can expect great tidbits like that if you subscribe to Dave's podcast, again called Today in American Revolution History, and available at 
amrevtoday.com. So today's episode covered the Howe brothers' attempts to impose a settlement of hostilities based on the intimidating large army and navy they brought to New York and a show of their military skills in capturing Long Island. American leaders, of course, were not suitably impressed, and the peace conference only resulted in a delay of the war for a couple of weeks. The fact that the conference was a bust is not terribly surprising or interesting, but the fact that it happened at all shows just how much the British leaders, especially top military leaders, were eager to end this fighting before it got too bloody. If you want to read more about this specific event, my book recommendation this week is Stop the Revolution, America in the Summer of Independence and the Conference for Peace by Thomas McGuire. This book focuses directly on the Peace Conference and surrounding events. It's a short read at under 200 pages. The author, Thomas McGuire, is a prep school social studies teacher who has written several books, including another one on the Battle of Paoli, as well as a two-volume set on the entire Philadelphia campaign, topics I hope to cover sometime next year. I really like single-topic books like this because it's somebody who's focusing really on one very specific event and covers it very well. This book does a great job with the Peace Conference, where other books on the era tend to brush past this event in a couple of pages. For my online recommendation this week, I wanted to let you know I've been enjoying another podcast called the Industrial Revolutions Podcast. They published an episode last month on the American Revolution and how it impacted the Industrial Revolution. That's what got my attention about this podcast. If you want to check it out, the podcast is on all major podcast platforms or go to industrialrevolutionspod.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.